Looks like we will uh, be uh, preaching on this series, praying through uh, for about another month from now. So maybe four more messages. And, and, and if, if, if God lets me, I think what, what I want to do next, I just started studying my personal devotion time yesterday, so I can't pull the trigger on it yet. But I'm going to leak just a little bit because that's just what I do sometimes. Uh, if God lets me, I want to preach on the Psalms of Asaph. And, and he was a worship leader in the temple. In fact, he was a leader of worship leaders in a lot of regards. The man was known for worship. And so I want to look at Asaph's Psalms through the lens of living a life of worship. And uh, I, I really, I hope God lets me do that and, and put those together. And, and so you, you pray in that direction. And we will start that sometime probably, I don't know, December or something like that. And uh, we'll just probably stay in the Psalms in the midweek and, and, and keep plowing through these um, as God lets us. Psalms chapter number three. Let's read all eight verses. All right. Let's read all eight verses. Now I want to read it in a corresponsive way. So I want to read verse one. Then I want you to read verse two. I'm going to read verse three and I want you to read verse four. I'll read verse five. You read six. I read seven. You read eight. If you're with me, say amen. amen. I'll read one and you read two. Here we go. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Oh, you guys think it means Selah or Selah? Ooh, I don't know. I can't figure it out. Verse number three. The choir's going to know this verse. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. The cadence is, is awesome. Verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. <laughs> I love it. We'll never do that on a Sunday morning. Never. Never. But I like doing that every once in a while. That's good. And by the way, by, by way of unison and uniformity, that really is one of the key reasons why we use the same version of the Bible. So that what I'm reading, you can be reading. And what you're reading, I can be preaching from. And, and it just leads to a great sense of unison and unity around the same text of Scripture. Uh, we're going to be talking about praying through personal attack. Praying through personal attack. Many of you, not me, but many of you are old enough to remember the Watergate scandal. The resignation of President Richard Nixon. If you were alive during that time, will you raise your hand? All right, many of you were. I, I've only read about it. They say there are about 69 people indicted in that scandal. 48 people were convicted. And whether you agreed with the man politically or not, that's really not the point tonight. The entire situation really sad. And one writer put it so well, I had to just type it out and put it on the screen because it describes why this situation was so sad, at least through the lens of President Nixon. Look what this writer said. One day, you're one of the most powerful men in the world. You were always the center of attention. You were always surrounded by a host of secret service agents whose job is to protect you at the risk of their own lives. Your words are plastered on the front of pages of newspapers around the world. At press conferences, reporters try to parse the nuance of your every sentence. What you say can make the stock market shoot up or down. 
When you give orders, a bunch of underlings jump to make it happen. You live in a mansion with servants attending to your every need. You have a private jet, helicopter, and limousine, plus a private retreat at your disposal as you carry out the nation's business. But the next day, you resign in disgrace. Your presidency, presidency is shambles. You leave the public eye. You move out of the White House. Nobody cares anymore what you say or think unless you're ready to confess your guilt in the scandal. Life changed drastically on that fateful day for Mr. and Ms. Nixon. Can you believe that? Can you put your mind there? The reason why I bring that up is because it's really the closest thing I could think of that would relate to the pain and the trouble and the embarrassment and humiliation that King David had to endure when his own son Absalom led a revolt against him and ran him off of his throne as the king of Israel. David had reigned for decades, just, just like the president, Mr. Nixon, as one of the most powerful monarchs in the world. His military prowess was legendary. He had extended Israel's dominion far beyond their own borders. He'd become incredibly wealthy. He lived and enjoyed the, a life of splendor in his palace with all his many wives and all these many servants. He had the absolute authority of life and death over everyone with whom he had dealings. So much power. No one would, would dare get on his bad side. But then he got caught in a scandal. A lot worse than President Nixon. David sinned with Bathsheba and ordered the death of her husband, Uriah. We, we talked about it last week. It's that, that's what gave birth to Psalms chapter 51 and that prayer of repentance through his sin. And although David eventually did repent after a year of hiding and concealing it, David's sin set in motion a series of these God-ordained, devastating consequences. Now consider the consequences that David's sin set in place because it's going to contribute to this psalm. David's oldest son, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar's uh, brother, Absalom, got mad, of course, took revenge by murdering Amnon. Absalom then had to, had to flee into exile for several years, but later was permitted to come back to Jerusalem. But after his return, David was so mad at, at Absalom that he didn't talk to his wayward son for two years. That made resentment build inside the heart of Absalom. And he began to court all these disgruntled people in the kingdom. And he began to offer himself subtly as a more sympathetic leader than his powerful father was. And finally, Absalom placed together, after, time, after a lot of time of, of, of persuading these people, he, he kind of pieced together this strong conspiracy and he got all of these thousands of people, majority of the nation, to turn on his own dad. And that made David and at least a few of his servants and their kids grab their stuff and flee from Jerusalem. The text tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16 that David was, was grieving so much from his own son attacking him in this way that he was walking barefoot and he was weeping with his head covered in shame. To add insult to his injury, a man named Shimei from the family of David's predecessor, King Saul, came out of his house as David passed by and Shimei began to curse David and throw rocks at David and accuse him of being a worthless man who had brought his own downfall on himself because of his murderous acts. And then David writes Psalms 3. It's birthed out of a time when he was personally attacked. Now listen, David had experienced attack before. 
He'd experienced defeat before. He'd experienced humiliation before and betrayal before. But this time it was on an entirely different level. This time it was more personal because this time it involved an attack from his own son. It would be like me for two years, maybe ten years ago. It would be like me for ten years getting a portion of our church together and saying, we're going to run my dad out of the pulpit. I promise I didn't do that. But that's exactly the situation, but on a grand scale. That would hurt my dad. And it hurt David. I want to ask you, have you ever been personally attacked? Have you ever been personally attacked from somebody you loved and trusted? I have. It hurts deeply, doesn't it? Being personally attacked can involve a lot of things. Being betrayed, being ganged up on, being belittled, being lied about, being maligned, being slandered, being abused, being manipulated, being treated unfairly, being stolen from or taken advantage of. Personal attack can happen anywhere. It can happen at home. It can happen within the immediate or extended family. It can happen right here at church. It can happen at work. It can happen over a business deal. A personal attack can take place in a variety of ways, but here's the thing. However it happens and wherever it happens, it's very troubling. That's why David started his prayer with that line, Lord, many there be which trouble me. It's hard to shake when you're personally attacked. It's hard to let go. It's hard to walk away from. It's hard to respond to appropriately. It's hard to stay focused on what really matters when you've been personally attacked. I mean, it goes with you everywhere. So what did David do? Well, Psalms 3 teaches us that he prayed. Which leads me to ask you a question. What did you do last time you were personally attacked? What was your first response? Or maybe when you felt personally attacked, did you pray? Was that your go-to thing to do? Psalms 3 is a result of David praying through this attack. Not about it. Not around it. Not raising his hand in a midweek service and requesting prayer for it. But getting alone with God and praying through it. They say that Psalms 3 is known as a morning psalm. Morning as in the first part of the day. While Psalms 4 right next to it is known as an evening psalm. Now this is kind of important, I think, because it gives us a little bit of an idea of, of David's posture. They say that, it, that Psalms 3 is a morning psalm because of verse 5 of chapter 3. Where David says, I laid me down and slept, I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. So he's waking out of sleep when he writes this song. But you go to chapter 4 and verse 8, and he says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. So, so chapter 4 is written in the evening, perhaps, and chapter 3 is written in the morning. We, we have to conclude that maybe David penned this prayer the morning after he got ran out of Jerusalem. I'm imagining that he couldn't sleep as late as he normally would sleep in due to the fact that he was sleeping with, on a rock as a pillow for the first time in a long time. Wasn't used to it. On top of that, his mind was racing. His heart was hurting. And I think he probably got up before the sun came up. He tried to get up slowly and shuffle around people that were sleeping around him. All the little ones and all his servants. And he tried to go off to a quiet place. Because he knew that the only way he was going to make it through this one was if he prayed through it. And he teaches us three ways to pray through our personal attack. In the first three verses, here's what he teaches. Trust God's promises more than man's words. Look at verse number one. Lord, 
How are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be, verse 2, which say of my soul, there's no help for him in God, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. Did you notice a word that David repeated several times in the first two verses? It's the word many. He says, many there be which trouble me, many there be which say of my soul. He, he wasn't being melodramatic. I mean, his enemies were literally multiplying. In, in fact, if you go study the account in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 17, you're going to find that, that the nation as a whole was backing Absalom. It wasn't just a few. David even later says that, that there are tens of thousands that are rising up against him. When he said rising up against me, he's talking about a staged rebellion. So David wasn't just signaling that he was outnumbered. He was signaling that he's being outmaneuvered as well. And that hurts. That's a part of a personal attack that hurts when you know that the personal attack wasn't done impulsively off a whim, but you knew that, that the person that attacked you has been thinking about this for a long time. They've been grieving you for this for a long time. They've been prepping you for this for a long time. They've been scheming and manipulating to, to, to do this for a long time. And that's what, why it hurts so bad with David. Because he realized that the people he had given himself to, the people that he was leading, the people that he trusted, didn't really trust him back anymore. And, the, and they didn't like him for a long time, apparently. This kind of stage rebellion doesn't happen overnight. David felt so duped. Felt so outmaneuvered. Then, then David pointed to the content of the attack in verse 2 when he said, hey, basically people are saying this. There's no help for God. With, with, there's, what did he say exactly? There's no help for him in God. In other words, David, God's done with you. He wants nothing to do with you. You have worn him out. He's ran out of grace and patience and forgiveness for you. You, you, you just have, have crossed the line in, in shedding the blood of an innocent man and stealing his wife and, and trying to cover it up. David, God's done with you. You know what I think David is actually referring to when you study the account that, that birthed this psalm? I think he was talking about the words of Shimei. 2 Samuel chapter 16. He was a family member of, of, of King Saul. And he came out and he cursed David, threw rocks at him. This is actually what he said. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial. That literally means a troubled man, a troublemaker. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom to the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. David, you brought this on yourself. God's done with you. He won't bail you out of this one. Now listen, it's not that Shimei's words were false. Yeah, he was a bitter man, but it wasn't inaccuracy that was the problem with those words. It was the insinuation from him and others that God was done with David. That's what hurt about this, as far as what they were saying about David, that's what hurt. And it's one thing, listen, for, for friends to desert you and family members to plot against you, but it's an altogether different thing when they try to rob you of God. Perhaps the most hurtful part of this attack to David, more so than his own son running him off the throne, throne was the declaration made against him that God was done with him. And is not that one of the go-to techniques of the devil when he's attacking us? And accusing us, especially after a failure? The devil is called the accuser of the brethren for a reason. He will do his dead level best to convince us 
That because of our failure, God's done with us and we've gone too far and we've wore out God's patience and, and not even God will help us now. And if we aren't careful, listen, we'll believe that. That's why we have to plow through those lies and, and through those words with prayer. We have to trust God's promises more than man's words. And that's what David did because the first words of, of verse 3 are this, But thou, O Lord, but thou, O Lord. In other words, David's saying this, let me contrast what they're saying with who God is and who he's promised to be for me. David chose to pray through to the place where the truth became louder than the lies. And David started by saying, God is my defense. Thou art a shield for me. His enemies were reporting just the opposite. They were saying that God had given up on David. But the truth is that God was standing with him and surrounding him. Because the Bible says God will never leave you or forsake you. David also said to God, he's my glory. Now this can be one or two things. It could either mean that David is saying, God, you are my glorious one, speaking of God's character. Or it could mean that, that, that God, you are the one who restores my glory. Referring to God's actions towards David in view of the circumstances and the context, I think it refers to the actions of God in restoring David's glory. Because David was just stripped of his glory in the past 24 hours. And so this makes it a great prayer of faith where David is saying, Lord, your purposes for me are not over. They're saying I'm done. But Lord, I don't have to fight back. I don't have to seek my own glory. My future and my kingdom are in your hands. You're my glory. And a personal attack, listen, it might cause you to feel like your glory has been stripped. And like you'll never get it back. So you'll be tempted to fight to get it back and prove yourself loudly. But you need to learn to trust in God's promises to be your glory and to establish your glory according to his will and in his time. David then said of God, he's the lifter up of my head. I love that phrase because David is saying this. This isn't my last chapter. I will rise up again with the help of God. And he believed these promises were, were literally guaranteed by the character of God himself. The point is this. Don't say the final amen until you've prayed through the deceit of man's words or the devil's words. And you've trusted God's promises to be your defense and, and your glory and the lifter of your head. Somebody say amen. Here's the second way to pray through personal attack. Trust God's provision, his past provision more than your present emotion. Look at verse number four, the first phrase. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. Look up here for a moment. Let's talk about this. David's emotional. And wouldn't you be? Your son has attacked you. He's led a revolt against you. Not five people. I'm talking tens of thousands of people. David was utterly devastated. In fact, let, let me show you what 2 Samuel 15 verse 30 says of David's raw emotion. Look how this played out. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot and all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that faith has to lead the way in prayer. But at the same time, I believe faith does not deny honest feelings and raw emotion. The Bible says, cast all your care upon God. He cares for you. In fact, one lady, I don't even know who she is. I just ran by it in my study. Her name is Kathleen Norris. I love the way she articulated this. She said, the prayers of David in the Psalms defeat our tendency to try to be holy without being human first. 
Praying through personal attacks, she says, is not a tidy spiritual exercise. It does not fit a schedule. It does not remain neatly under wraps. It often does not conform to acceptable public Christian demeanor. Praying through often requires many boxes of tissues. It produces red, puffy eyes and a runny nose. We want so desperately to be holy without being honest. God won't allow it. Praying through won't be turned back by unwieldy emotions. Here's the point I want to make. In prayer, emotion is perfectly okay with God. Crying is okay with God. Too many Christians think, I, I firmly believe this, they think it's a sign of weakness. And then there's some on the other, other side of this coin that, that all they do is cry. <laughs> and we can't be on either side of that, uh, of that, that, that spectrum there. We, we got to make sure that, yes, we are willing to cast our care upon God as raw as it is, as unfiltered as it is. You don't suppress grief in your prayer closet like you suppress grief when you go to work. Okay, I understand. When you go to work, by the way, your disposition is a discipline. All right, sometimes you've got to smile when you don't feel like it and you need to discipline yourself to do it. And you might think, well, that's inauthentic. Well, you need, to, you need to learn to encourage people through a smile when you don't feel like it. And so your discipline, I mean, your, your disposition is a discipline. But when you go to the prayer closet, it's not so. It's not so. You don't have to power up with God. You don't have to put on a fake smile with God. You don't have to hold it in with God. You don't have to stop talking because you know you're going to cry any second now. There is something healthy about letting out your emotion to God, crying out to God. But listen, you just, you can't stay there forever. You can't. Now, now understand something about tears. I really believe that your tears are as audible as your words to God. How, how do you know that? Look at Psalms 56 verse 8. Look at this on the screen. Thou tellest my wondering, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? That is an amazing verse. That God tr keeps track of your tears because each of your tears represents a sorrow, a trouble, and a disappointment that maybe in that moment you can't even articulate, but your tears talk. Did you hear me? They do, and God understands that, and God keeps track of that, and doesn't intimidate God, and doesn't make God feel awkward. God welcomes that, but you've got to move through the mire of emotion, and you've got to move on to faith, and that's what David did. He didn't stay in his present emotion and stop there. Look at the last part of verse 4. And he heard me out of his holy hill. Notice the tense David spoke here. He said, God heard me. The only way to get through present emotion to a place of confident faith is for David to recall God's past provision in his life. I mean, there were many times that David could recall crying out to God in the past and God hearing him. Maybe he was thinking of the time that he stood before Goliath with just a sling and a stone. Teenage boy and said, my God will deliver me like he delivered me out of the hand of the lion and the bear. And God heard him. Maybe he was thinking about the time King Saul betrayed him and ran him from, from one cave to the next. And, and he cried out to God, deliver me from my enemies. And God heard him. Maybe he was thinking about the time he couldn't even put one more foot in front of the other. And he was so overwhelmed, he thought he was going to drop dead at any moment. And he cried out to God, Psalms 142, my spirit faints within me. Attend to my cry, for I am very low. And God heard him. Maybe he was thinking about the time when he'd been over backwards, Brother Mike preached on it to help the people of Keilah. 
Then they turned around, stabbed him in the back and, and, and told Saul where David was and everything within David who wanted to vindicate himself. But instead he cried out to God, oh God, he said, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. And God heard him. Maybe he was thinking about most recently in Psalm 51 is when, 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 when his sin was found out and he prayed as a broken man. Oh God, uh, clean me and wash me and blot out my transgression and restore to me the joy of my salvation and give me a clean heart. And God heard him. The point is David went from crying to confidence because he took time to recall that if God heard me cry yesterday, he will hear me cry again today. Question, have you, have you taken time lately to recall the prayers that God has answered for you? This might be one of the disciplines I think we overlook the most in our prayer lives. We pray and we pray and we pray for a specific thing. God answers and we move on to the next thing. Nothing wrong with moving on to the next thing, but there's something wrong if we move on to the next thing without stopping and worship Him and thanking Him and taking a record of the way He answered this thing. I think sometimes... It would be healthy for us to start a prayer journal where on one side of a piece of paper we have a column that says prayer request. And on the other side of the piece of paper we have a column that says prayers answered. And we, we keep a record of God's faithfulness. And that way when we're singing a song like great is thy faithfulness, some tangible and concrete things can come into our mind. I guarantee you, if, I'm, if I ask you and put you on the spot today, give me the last four or five prayers God answered in your life, you, it would take you some time to think about it. Because we forget about it. We move on with our life. But we, we have to understand that that's ammunition for our faith. That's food for our faith. That's like lifting weights for our faith. Man, if we keep track of past victories and past answered prayers, it'll give us the faith to cry out again. Do you understand? A couple of you do. He recalled that God sustained him as well. Look at verse 5. I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. David's mind, watch here, went back to the, the many nights that, that he was running from King Saul. And the, the many nights he was scared out of his mind. The many nights he found himself in a dark cave all by himself. But, but somehow God enabled him to fall asleep. Even if on many of those nights he had to cry himself to sleep. Now, now don't miss the miracle in this that David is able to sleep on a night like this. If we, if, if, listen, if we made somebody mad and it's not worked out, we can't even sleep. If we can't figure out how to pay a medical bill, we struggle to sleep. David's sleeping in a cave in the dark and the guy falls asleep. David's sleeping in the open plain after just getting ran off of his throne and hunted by his own son. He's falling asleep. It's just like Jesus. When all the disciples are, are braving the storm in the boat, Jesus is in the back sleeping. It's like this immense amount of peace. What enabled David to be able to do that? To his surprise, David woke up. He didn't wake up to a sword tucked by his neck by one of Saul's soldiers. He didn't wake up with a spear on his neck by his son Absalom. He, he didn't wake up next to a, a wild animal hungry to eat him. He woke up 
and went about another day because God sustained him. That's why David could say in verse six, because God is, he, he's allowed me to sleep in the darkest of nights and the most loneliest of caves and the most vulnerable of situations. And, and he, he's awakened me every new morning and I haven't had a scratch on my body and I have never, uh, ne never thought that, that or never woken up to, to a situation in which God was gonna take my life. I can go on, I, I can keep going one foot in front of the other. I can pray another prayer. I can, I can go another day because God has sustained me yesterday and he will sustain me today. Now let me ask you, have you ever been in a situation where you said to yourself, I can't do it anymore? You said that out loud. I can't go another day feeling this sick. I can't go back to work there ever again. I can't stay married to him or her another day. I can't forgive them even one more time. I'm done. Have you ever been there? Yet somehow God sustains you. You went to bed and you woke up. He kept you. God gave you what you needed to go another day, to take another step, to forgive one more time, to go back to work for another shift, to keep working at that marriage. Hey, listen, those times of sustainment is what you have to recall in your mind if you're going to make it through your emotions to a place of confidence. If you're going to survive these personal attacks that come your way, you have to remember that God has sustained you through previous attacks. Somebody say amen. Here's the last point. Trust God's protection more than your enemy's threats. First part of verse 7. Arise, David said, O Lord. What's that phrase about? Well, that's a common battle cry. You can look it up in the book of Numbers. Moses used it as well. And they would say that because that, that, that was something they would shout out as they were uh, making their advance towards their enemy. They would say, arise, O Lord, to declare their confidence in the protection of God. David said, save me, O my God. That, that, that word for save is from the same word that David's enemies had used against him in verse number two when they said there is no help or salvation for him in God. So what David was doing was he was calling on God to do the very thing his enemy said he would not do. What's the point? Well, David is turning the threats of his enemies back upon them by taking them up before God. And notice that David didn't cut any corners with this request. Look at the last part of verse seven. He said, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. What's this about? Just as his enemies, watch, just as his enemies had humiliated him, including his own son, David was asking God to humiliate them. Slapping somebody across the cheek was more about humiliating them than inflicting pain upon them in that day. Then David had the faith to believe that God would disarm them. The teeth that he prayed for, that, that, that he would break the teeth of the ungodly, th those are, teeth in that day were, were a metaphor uh, for their weaponry. In fact, David could be quite literal here because Absalom's greatest weapon in this situation was not his sword. He didn't pierce David with his sword. Pierced him with his words. It was his ability to persuade the people to be loyal to him over his father. It was Shimei's words that pierced David. And David, though, watch here, though he could have went into a war of words with his son, he chose rather to let God take care of it. God, you disarmed them, not me. David teaches us when you're attacked, don't attack back. When you're screamed at, don't scream back. When you're posted about, don't post back. When you're gossiped about, don't gossip back. Fight your battles on your knees. 
Trust God's protection more than your trust and more than you give in to your enemy's threats. Here's what we learn when we're personally attacked. You don't have to strike back, pay back or get back because God has your back. Yeah, that's good. Look at verse eight, that's how he closes. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. This is an amazing picture. I want you to, I want you to focus. The word salvation here is, is the one from which the name Yeshua. I would have had no idea before I studied that this was, this was what David was getting at. It's the one from which the name Yeshua comes. That's the Hebrew name for Jesus. Interestingly, you study 2 Samuel 15 through 17. The pathway that David walked as he departed Jerusalem that day, and he went up barefoot, weeping with his servants and their kids, was the same one Jesus would later travel on his way to the garden in Gethsemane. It was there that David's Savior, watch here, would also be betrayed and personally attacked by a friend. It was there that the people, his people, his disciples would turn against him. But Jesus didn't flee. What did he do? He stayed and he prayed. He prayed through that night, even to the point of sweating drops of blood. He prayed through his emotion to a place of faith and obedience to his father. And then he died for David. And he died for you. And he died for me. And what David was doing in the Old Testament here is he was looking forward in faith to the deliverance God would bring through Jesus. But as he indicated in the last line of the psalm, this part of the prayer wasn't just for him. He said, thy blessing is upon thy people. See, we get to claim the very same deliverance. We get to claim the very same salvation that David did, but because the cross was just as much for us as it was for David. David looked forward in faith to his deliverance, but we, because of Jesus Christ, listen, we get to look back and we get to count it as a done deed. The implication is so clear. We can pray with even more confidence for God's deliverance in our lives than David could because we have the cross to look back to. We have his salvation through Calvary to look back to, which is the ultimate proof of God's willingness to deliver us and, and protect us and to be our guard and to be our shield and to be our defense and to be the lifter up of our head. If you ever doubt that God has your back, look to the cross. He proved it once and for all. When he gave his only begotten son to die for you, I've got your back. And your own family, your own family might attack you. Whether that be your blood family or your church family. Or your family at the workplace. Your family on the team. You might get stabbed in the back in an Absalom kind of way where they schemed it and they plotted against you and they were literally out to take the rug out from under you. That was their whole point. They manipulated to make it happen. That might happen in your life. That might have happened in your life. What do we do when that happens? We don't attack back. We don't. At the same time, we don't act like nothing happened. We go to our prayer closet. We cry before God. 
Did you hear me? We cry before God. Christians, you got to get a hold of this. Quit talking to other people more than you talk to God about your troubles. Two reasons. You're not getting any help. Number two, you're wearing people out. I'm going to repeat that again. You're not just getting as much help from them as you can get from God, number one. Number two, you're wearing people around you out. Stop wearing people out. God didn't get worn out by your cares. Doesn't mean that people aren't, aren't essential in your life. Don't get me wrong. I said, don't talk to them as much as you talk to God. God has, you've got to be, got to be your closest friend. He's got to be the person that you can just be real with. Don't be the kind of person that every time you get in a conversation, it's what's wrong with you. That's for God. That, you hearing me? That's for God. That's what David teaches us more than anything. How many times could he have just went and blasted this on Facebook? By way of writing on stone. Our scroll. David had a discipline of prayer because he had a close-knit relationship and a trust in his father to hear him. The reason why we take it to other people more than we take it to God, whether it's a personal attack or whether it's humiliation or whether it's a trial or whether it's an emotional struggle, the reason why we continually wear people out is because we don't talk to God enough. We don't trust Him enough. He's not tangible. It's exactly what we talked about on Sunday night. We want people to be our king. We want people to be our physical comfort, our security. We can see them and touch them. We can manipulate their response. A 15-minute conversation with them, we can see their body language, we can get their feedback, we can, it makes us feel better, but it's just temporarily. A daily relationship with God over people is what is so much deeper in your life. So much deeper. Yes, you need people. We cannot do the Christian life alone. We need the church. We need a community. So badly we need that. You need to have one or two people in your life that you can go to at any time for any reason and you can be 100% real with. Somebody say amen to that. We need that. I want to be a pastor. I want to be a shepherd that you feel like you can come to in the, in, in the lowest and the highest moments of your life. I want to cry with you and I want to celebrate with you. But you know what I want more than that? I want you to have a daily real walking relationship with your Savior. I want Him to be your shield, not me. I want him to be your glory, not your best friend. I want him to be the lifter of your head, not the person you go to church with. Because they will fail you and I will fail you, but our God will never fail you. Jesus is your salvation. Learn to cast all your care upon him. If you're personally attacked, if you're personally attacked now or have been in the past or will be in the future, here's the Psalm 3 prayer. Trust God's promises more than man's words. Trust God's past provision more than your present emotion. Trust God's protection more than your enemy's threats. Notice how I started every one of those main points. Trust God's promises more. Trust God's past provision more. Trust God's protection more. Because here, here's what David is getting at. A personal attack is an invitation to trust God more. And it hurts. And there's a lot of misery attached to it. And it's hard to let go. It's hard to shake. It's hard to focus. You feel like you won't rebound from something like that sometimes. But God is sovereign. And listen to me. He let that happen. 
And if that comes your way by somebody you even trusted and loved, here's what it means. It's God going just like this to you. Run to me. Come worship me. Come get more intimately close to me. Quit trusting people more. Quit trusting emotions more. Quit trusting their words and their threats and what they say and what they think more. Trust me more. That's the invitation tonight. We just stand to your feet, every head bowed.